0: Hear the scripture reading today. Receive this from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 14. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Thank you, Aaron. And if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 14. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at church in the square. Always good. To open up God's word with you. So, as we continue uh, considering Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is this uh, address that he has here, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, we return to a the theme of prayer. If you remember earlier, Jesus gives his disciples instructions about how and what to pray. Um, if you remember, he said that some pray to be heard or to be seen. Um, but instead of doing that, he says, Here's how you should pray. You should or you should pray in solitude, you should pray in humility to your heavenly Father, he says, who sees in secret in chapter 6. That's the how. And then he says, pray then like this. And then he lays out what we popularly know as the Lord's Prayer. That's then the what. So he's communicated how to pray and what to pray. And today in verses 7 through 14 in chapter 7, Jesus then returns to this theme, but now he explains why. Why we should pray. Now for some of us, prayer is a habit. In other words, before we eat a meal, we're like, all right, we should tell God, thank you. And so we do that. Maybe that's how you grew up, or maybe that's just what feels right to you. Or when we gather in a worship setting, this may be the only time that you pray, but it's a part of your routine and habit. Others of us pray because we've seen it change things. We've seen its impact in a situation or a season. And so some of us pray out of habit. Some of us pray because we know it works. Others of us perhaps see zero cosmic reason, zero spiritual reason to pray, except we just kind of feel good when we do it. It has sort of a personal effect on us. When we pray, it's calming. Maybe it calms down our children, right? And so we see the sort of pragmatic or practical implications that it has for our lives. So some of us pray just because it's a habit. Some of us pray because we see its effect or its effectiveness, and other times we pray because it feels good. So we pray because helps our lives, but maybe, or as a part of our lives, but maybe it's not really that meaningful, or we pray because it's effective, but sometimes it's not, and so we don't really know what to do with that, Um, and other times we pray because it makes us feel good, but it's little effect outside of that, and so perhaps we're left with this curiosity as to why that might be, so regardless then of our preconceived notions of prayer and habits of prayer and previous experiences, I think Jesus speaks to all of us today about prayer, See, amidst all of our reasons and tensions within prayer, Jesus gives us this singular focus about what prayer is all about or the purpose behind prayer. He directs all of our attention as he casts all of his attention on the Heavenly Father. That's the primary reason for prayer. Prayer is all about the Heavenly Father. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about why prayer is all about the Heavenly Father. I want to talk about the fact that that fact when we understand that rather that that habit of prayer becomes much more meaningful and the effectiveness of prayer becomes so much more multi-layered than perhaps we can see or perceive with our own eyes and prayer benefits prayer's benefit rather goes well beyond just the warm fuzzies or good feelings or calm that it gives us and we discover that we're actually participating with God in the renewal of all things And so it takes each of our habits or our personal experiences with prayer. And I think Jesus, by pointing us to the heavenly father, gives us the full picture of what that pain or that experience, that longing is pointing to. Again, we'll consider all of this by directing our attention, giving our attention to the heavenly father as Jesus describes him here. So here's how we'll organize our time. Prayer, we'll say, is about the father's will. Prayer is about the Father's character, and prayer is about the Father's story. So the Father's will, the Father's character, and the Father's story. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, it seems fitting to ask for your help and to pray to you when we're about to think about prayer, when we're about to think about you. And so I pray... Some of us, this is a new concept of prayer and how to think about how to do it ourselves. Perhaps prayer has just been something we've seen professionals do or something that we've seen really spiritual or religious people do in our lives, but it's never been personally impactful. Perhaps it is a habit, something that we do a lot, but it never really seems to bear much meaning or force or weight or beauty in our own lives. And so I pray that you would give us a picture today of what this gift means. To us, what it it means to you, how it shapes us, how it shapes the world around us, how it invites us into the story that you're telling, um, and ultimately that it would be for your glory. And so help me, help me to be clear and responsible with your word and help all of us to respond appropriately, not by putting a good list together, though that may be helpful today, uh, but by being sensitive to your leading in this moment. Would you change our hearts as we hear you speak? Would you break down preconceived notions of who you are as Father? Would you help us to confess sin even in a moment? As soon as you expose that sin would we confess it and would we know that you are good and faithful to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness? Would you tear down things that hinder us from the intimacy and beauty of prayer that you uh, have given us through your Son, by your Spirit and with you, our Heavenly Father? And so help us in all this and so many more things that I'm not wise enough, intelligent enough to even ask for. Uh, Would you do all of that and more, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. So, Jesus begins with this incredibly thrilling promise. I think when we read it, it's pretty fantastic. Look verse 7 through 8. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, It will be open. So ask, you'll receive, seek, and you'll find, knock, and it'll be open. This sounds really awesome, doesn't it? But way too simple. This is like, you know, this just seems way too simple, right? Or worse, perhaps you're even thinking more skeptically, this is really misleading. What is Jesus talking about? This is not how this works at all, right? After all, who among us has not asked God for something, and we're literally right now still waiting for him to deliver How many of us have sought something and still we have not found it? How many of us have knocked on doors? They're still not open. So what in the world could Jesus possibly be meaning? What could he possibly be teaching us? See, in fact, all we have to do, Jesus says, is open to be open to any really, um, or rather we just have to open to anywhere in the scriptures and we have discovered God's people constantly asking for stuff, seeking stuff, and knocking on doors that just do not open. Things do not go this simple and this clear. So what could Jesus possibly be talking about if they're this easily debunked? If his words are this easily debunked, surely they have a different meaning. So what is Jesus promising? Well, to answer it, it's helpful to understand that Jesus said this in a number of different ways in a number of different passages. He was particularly enamored with this idea in what's called the farewell discourse. John chapter 14 through 17, is a collection of teachings that he delivers after the Lord's Supper and before his crucifixion, which seems like a really good time to teach the disciples how to pray or to teach the disciples about prayer or about talking to God. It's when he's about to go back to be with his heavenly Father. So if you would, if you're in Matthew, turn to the right to the Gospel of John. Matthew, then through Mark, then through Luke, and then you'll get to John. John chapter 14, verse 13. Again, we're asking the question, what could Jesus mean by ask and you'll get it, seek and you'll find it, knock and it'll be open to you, if that's just not our experience? How do we make sense of what he is saying? John chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus says a very similar thing. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. Oh, that's the wrong passage. I'm still in Matthew. (laughs) I was like, that's not going to make that point. John chapter 14, verse 13. I gave you guys the directions and I didn't even follow them. How about that? Jesus says, truly, uh, or whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He says something similar. Keep moving. John chapter 15, verse 7 through 8. John 15, verse 7 through 8. Again, this is the same discourse. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Move down to verse 16 in John chapter 15. He said, you do not choose, did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he will give it to you. In 16, verse 23, so one more place in this discourse where he says this similar idea about prayer or asking of the Lord. John 16, verse 23, he says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, do you see? What exactly is Jesus promising as he says this four different times in four different ways in this farewell discourse? Well, he's promising, rather his promise comes with a a caveat or a condition. Jesus says, if you pray in accordance with the will of the Father... Or he says, in my name, or when you abide in me is another way that he put it. He says, then and only then, whatever you ask will be given. Whatever you're seeking after, you're going to find it. Whatever door you knock on, it will be open. You see, prayer is all about the Father's will. Prayer is all about the Father's will. Now, this should be really encouraging. We should read through this and go, that is awesome. We should be elated that whatever the creator of the universe, whatever our heavenly father, whatever our omnipotent and all-knowing and all-loving God, whatever he plans, whatever he, whatever he determines, whatever he wills, whatever he desires, it's going to come to pass. It should be thrilling. But most of us, when we read that caveat, are really bummed, right? That's kind of a frustrating caveat because I thought it was whatever I asked and whatever I sought and whatever door I knocked on. And then it's all about the father's will. It's kind of a little bit frustrating, so I think we should interrogate that a little bit. So let's just keep it real. Not only is this initially not only not comforting to many of us, it's deeply troubling. Let's think about it. Ancient culture esteemed a personal will which was surrendered for the good of the group, the good of the community, the good of the tribe, the good of the family. Modern culture, though, esteems the unadulterated, unhindered personal will. This is the predominant identity narrative where we are daily told, whether it's through a song or movies or advertisement. For example, I can't think of a single narrative in all of media today where the point or the moral of the story is that children become their best selves when they obey their parents. I have not seen it. I have not seen it. Have you? In fact, it's almost always the opposite. Children are the educators of their parents, to help them understand freedom, identity, expression, personhood, it's never children at the end of the story go, oh, the moral of the story is listen to mom and dad. It might be listen to mom and dad, but you know, generally they really need to learn from us, right? That's interesting. That's interesting that these are the stories that we're not only writing as adults, but that we're giving to our children. And we're consuming this in a complete a host of other different ways as well. This is why we, I think we have a really hard time with prayer. Right, because we're inundated with this message that children are the ones who inform their parents and now Jesus is saying, no, your father is the one who informs you. Do you see, it's completely different. It's completely different than our understanding that giving our will over to another is not just uncommon, but it's even offensive. Namely, to our heavenly father. I've been working through an old book recently in my personal devotion called The Imitation of Christ. It's written by a guy named Thomas Kempis. Uh, who's a 15th century clergyman and writer. And just this week, it always happens like this, but just this week I was reading through a prayer and reflection of his that I think really captures the heart of what Jesus is communicating here uh, in Matthew chapter 7 about what it means to surrender our will in prayer. So it's a bit of a longer quote, but I hope that it will be instructive to us about what Jesus is teaching us. Akempis writes, (coughs) Lord, if it be your will, be it done as I ask. And if it be to your praise, let it be fulfilled in your name. And if you see that it is good and profitable to me, give me grace to use it to your honor. If you know it to be hurtful to me and not profitable to the health of my soul, then take away from me such desire. Not every desire comes from the Holy Spirit, though it seem right and just. It is sometimes quite hard to judge whether a good or an evil spirit moves you to this or to that, or whether you are moved by your own spirit. Many are deceived in the end, who first appear to have been moved by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, with fear of God and with humility of heart, you should desire and ask whatever comes into your mind to be desired and asked, and with complete forsaking of yourself, commit all things to God and say, Lord. You know what is most profitable to me. Do this or that according to your will. Give me what you will, as much as you will, and when you will, do with me as you know what is best to be done, as it shall please you, and it shall be most to your honor. Put me where you will, and freely do with me in according according to your will. I am your creature, and in your hands lead me and turn me where you will. Lo, I am your servant." Ready to do all things that you command, for I do not desire to live to myself, but to you. Would to God that I might live worthily worthily and profitably and to your honor. I have to confess to you, I don't pray like that. And it's not even just the low, right? I think we would all agree that Akimpus seems to have a view of prayer, that it's not a place where we make our will known to God and wait for him to affirm our sort of self-constructed identity and plans. Rather, he sees prayer as the place where we ask for the will and the identity and the desires of God to be shaped within our hearts. It's a place where I surrender my will and I take up the will of another, where we ask for his will to be done, where we seek his purposes to be realized, where we knock on doors for his name's sake. You might say, well, I don't know what the will of God is. Well, I love this part in Kempis' prayer where he says, "Just tell God what your desires are. It's cool. You don't need to act like you don't have certain desires. You don't need to act like you don't have plans or dreams or aspirations or ambition or hope for your future." He says, "Tell Him all your desires." The caveat is here. Now, Lord, if that's what's what you're up to, then I'm good with it. If you're not, then I know it's not good for me. It's not about not being honest. It's about living surrendered. Now, you might still say, well, I still don't know what the will of God is. And I think it's really helpful to know on our own, none of us do, right? What I think any of us learn as we follow Jesus is that it's only through his word, by his spirit and his people, where we learn the full expression of his will for our lives and the will of his his will for others. See, but by learning the will of God is not just in those places, but what Jesus is saying, we even learn about the will of God in prayer, In other words, I've been praying about something and it seems like the Lord's not about it, right? He's starting to like shape me even in the middle of my prayer. He's teaching me his will even as I pray. So why should we pray? Not because we've got the will of God figured out and we're just gonna go say, God, your will be done in this particular way. It's to be centered on the Father's purposes and in his plans and his process. Prayer is all about the Father's will. See, being conformed, To the Father's will, though, is not the only reason for prayer. We're not simply to get behind his plans and his purposes and his uh, processes through prayer. After all, being conformed to the will of another is not virtuous in and of itself. It's not good to just be shaped by someone else's will. The virtue of our surrender is predicated upon the character of that person, the character of our Heavenly Father. After all, to give our will over, to give ourselves over to someone who is evil or even just incompetent, is harmful and crushing. Right? But to give our will over to someone who is good is nourishing and it's liberating. You see, in prayer, we're not simply shaped by the plans of the Father. We're also shaped by his love. This is what sets the heavenly Father apart, his character. The prophet Jeremiah really understood this. He spoke to a people who were entrenched in another culture underneath this oppressive rule of another government, of another power, of another religious disposition that was in stark contrast to the God of the Bible. And Jeremiah delivers this divine message. Perhaps you've heard it. Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11 says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you your promise because, and, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, many of you have likely heard, if you've grown up anywhere around the church or you be- followed Jesus in the modern world here in the United States, in the evangelical world in particular, you know many evangelical Christians love this verse. I mean love this verse. We shellack it on plates. We put it on t-shirts just put it in Etsy. You will find any kind of way that you want this embroiled on something. It's there. So anyway, we love it. But why do we love it? Because it sounds like it's about me. I love things that sound like it's about me, right? Doesn't that seem really good? Like, I I want that. I, I want that kind of aspiration, that kind of future. It sounds like this Is about me, about my prosperity, about my flourishing, about the good life that we're asking, seeking, and knocking for, doesn't it? But while that's certainly in there, it's not the main point. We almost always, in modern American evangelical culture, almost always major on a minor. Almost always major on a minor. We take the subtext and we make it the text, right? Now, it's certainly in there, but the controlling part of the message is what? God. God. By the way, this entire book is about him. This whole book. I know that sounds crazy. It's a crazy thought. We're going deep cuts this morning. But this entire book is about him. And so if you read it and you come away only thinking about yourself, you've missed the main point. So have I. So have I. This is a great example of that. Because when we look back over the text, it's all about the Heavenly Father. He says to an enslaved people, what? I'm going to visit you. How is that not the headline when we read this text? He's going to visit and enslave people. Not only that, I'm going to fulfill my promises. That's awesome. He's going to fulfill his promises. I know the plans that I have for you. I've got them. They're my plans, and I've got them for you. Are you with me yet in this? This is all about the character of the Father. His love, his faithfulness, his protection, his goodness. How good is it that we have a God that doesn't just say awesome things? He does them. He doesn't just make awesome promises. He is faithful to his word. What he promises is as good as performed. This is what Jeremiah is telling the people of God. God is still going to be God, even though your entire circumstance looks like it's not. Even though you're asking a bunch of stuff, you're seeking a bunch of stuff, you're knocking on a bunch of doors, and it doesn't seem like it's working out the way that you want, do not fear. Why? Not because you've got your plans on lock. But because the character of the Heavenly Father is consistent, it's kind, it's powerful. And that's what gets shaped in us. In prayer, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. See, the will of the Father reveals the character of the Father. The will of the Father reveals the character of the Father. In other words, what? His will is good. Why? Because He's good. His will is acceptable or pleasing. Why? Because He is pleasing. His will is perfect. Why? Because He's perfect. The will of the Father reveals the character of the Father. In other words, to be conformed or to be shaped by the will of God is to be shaped in His likeness. It's to discover who you are. So you see, in prayer, we aren't coming to God with our self-constructed identities and our will, but prayer is the thing that's actually shaping our understanding of God's will, and it's actually even shaping us. This, too, like really cuts against the grain of the stories that we tell ourselves in society. This is really uncomfortable. Pastor Tim Keller explains that there is only one heroic narrative left, and it's this. To look within yourself, to decide who you are, and then to go out into the world and not let anybody tell you otherwise. That's the modern hero. The one who doesn't let anybody tell them who they are, who defends to the hilt who they've already determined to be. That's why, my brothers and sisters, I think we really fear the will of God and his character and the character of the Father through prayer. I think we fear this or we're scared about it or we're we're a little bit trepidatious to lean into this to surrender to him because we fear we'll lose ourselves. If I really give in to his will and I really give in to his character, we fear that we will lose ourselves. See, we fear if we surrender to the heavenly father, we won't get to succeed at work the way that we have worked so hard to succeed. If we surrender to the will of the father, then we won't get to enjoy sex the way that we want to enjoy it. If we surrender to the will of the Father, we won't get to enjoy and own our own sexuality. We won't buy what we want to possess. We won't go where we want to go. We won't see and be seen by where we want to be seen and who we want to see us. We won't receive what we're asking for. We won't find what we're seeking. We won't have the doors open that we've been knocking on and deserve and are entitled to. We won't be who we want to be, and that's terrifying. See, because in this cultural narrative that controls so much of the way that we think, we see the will and the character of God, the Heavenly Father, for what it takes from us. What it takes from us, what it costs us, what it steals from us. And that's terrifying. You see, we've looked within ourselves, we've determined what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect to us. We've written our own, or at least we're trying to write our own story, our own heroic narratives. And anything less is not only simply contrary or unhelpful, we even call it violence and a violation of our personhood. You can't touch my story. And this is why, like Jeremiah, Jesus gives us a clear picture of the character of the Father. Check out verse 9. Excuse me. Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give your good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give, you good thing, give good things to those who ask him? Jesus is using another one of those a fortiori arguments, which is just a fancy way of saying he's moving from the lesser to the greater. Right? That how much more? If you who are evil, you who are sinful, seeing compared to the imperfect and even sinful earthly parent with the perfect and sinless love of the Heavenly Father. But Jesus is saying even more than that. Notice, in Jesus' short parable, the child asks for something that is basic for survival and nourishment, bread and a fish. And he juxtaposes those necessary things with things that will cause harm, even kill the child, a stone and a snake. So what's Jesus saying? Well, contrary to the cultural narrative, the Heavenly Father's will is not for your demise. And I seriously, Heavenly Father help us, I seriously think there is a lot of healing and transformation that needs to happen in this, in this modern age in you and me. That we presume the Heavenly Father's will is crushing, hurtful, it steals, it takes from us, and it's not for our good. This comes out in the way that we pray. See, we often say that we don't pray because we don't have time. I think we don't pray because we don't trust him. We don't trust that he's good and that what he wants to say to us and do in our lives is really for our good. The Father's will is not intent on crushing your personhood. How do we know this? Because how much more? Because prayer reminds us of the character of our Heavenly Father, that he loves us, he provides for us, he takes care of us, he wants us, he wants you, he wants me to have what we need more than you do, more than I do. Do you know that God wants you to have good things more than you want to have good things? You just disagree on what's really good for you, and I just disagree on what's really good for me. He wants you to know the fullness of his joy, of his love, of why he has created you. This is what we're all searching for. The Father's will is for our survival, it's for our nourishment, it's for our good. His will is good, why? Because he's good. So why should we pray? Because I think we've forgotten who the Heavenly Father is. And when we come to God in prayer, we grow in trust and in love of our Father. It teaches our souls To go to the one who's made our soul, who nurtures our soul. Prayer is about the Father's character. Now, it's worth revisiting why this feels like death. It's cruel, right? Contrary to modern convention, it feels like something is dying because something is dying when we go to prayer. What Jesus is teaching us is that through surrender and that though surrender begins like death, it is a death that leads to life. This is what he considers next. From his will to his character, Jesus moves us to seeing and understanding the Father's story. See, all of history, from eternity past into eternity future, God is telling a story. Many of the details of that story we've looked at in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just a list of things to do and say. If you remember back in chapter 5, Jesus says that he's come, what, to fulfill the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill the promises of God. That's the story. We even see this if you break it down into the elements of story or a story arc he laid out the exposition, the rise and action, and the climax of the story in the first covenant. And when things began to fall apart, namely sin and the catastrophe of the brokenness and sin and Satan and death, that's the fall in action. And we all began to long for a resolution. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I am the resolution of the story. I am the one who's putting all things that have fallen apart back together again. And he summarizes it this way in Matthew chapter 7 verse 12 by inviting us into that work. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is what? The law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets is a shorthand for the Old Testament or the first covenant, the first part of the story. In other words, what's popularly known as the golden rule is an anchor for all of the Bible's moral teaching. In other words, if you treat your neighbor, if you love others the way you want to be loved and treated, you are fulfilling all of the other laws. But this requires death, doesn't it? Because putting another in the center of your consciousness means decentering yourself. That's a death. That's dying to yourself, namely because it's in a positive command, it's an act of instruction. Now, much has been made about the fact that the golden rule is found in a number of different religions and faiths high faith, Buddhism, Confucianism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism even, and others, have a nearly identical teaching except for one compelling distinction. All of those faiths, that golden rule is articulated as a negative or passive command. In other words, like, do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Now that may seem minor, but I'm a preacher. We love these little details right? It's instructive to the story of, that the Father is telling. To be proactive is to treat others in a direct, as a direct result of the way that the Heavenly Father has treated you. I submit to you, the Heavenly Father has not just not hurt you, he has loved you. He has moved toward you. He didn't just do no harm. He came and showed you love, hasn't he? He hasn't simply not harmed us. He hasn't simply not given us rocks and snakes. What has he done? He's given us bread given us fish he's healed us he's helped us he's answered us you see we only take the posture that posture towards our neighbor by laying aside ourselves our will and this cultural narrative of self when we die to ourselves and become someone new someone like our heavenly father when we love like we've been loved that's the story so why should we pray to be shaped by that story to be reminded about that story, about the truth and the beauty of the Father's vision and design for all of history, not the fantasy and the self-centered vision that we have of ourselves. We should believe the Father's story. Now in Galatians, Paul summarizes dying to self this way. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the story. This is the story that the Father is telling. This is the story we're learning every time that we come to God in prayer. When we come to him and we say, Heavenly Father, we're saying, I'm not in charge. When we say, Heavenly Father, we're talking to someone who loves us. we say, Heavenly Father, we're talking to someone who has been mindful of us. We're laying down our will. We're saying, what would you have me do? today we're stripping away our character and say I want to become less of me and I want to become more like you we're leaving our story and say God what do you want me to do today what's on your mind what's on your heart who how, how can I see the way you you see see prayer is not just the place I make my petitions and my requests known to God it's where I receive from him and I'm shaped by him we take on his will his character and his story See, prayer is this dynamic thing that we often miss as the epicenter of our own discipleship, of our own shaping. And this is really hard. This is uncommon. Prayer, like the Christian life in general, takes us down a very lonely road. And Jesus, I think, dignifies this struggle as he concludes this portion of the sermon. Look at verse 13 and 14. Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by and those who find, but suffice to say for our time, the wide gate and the easy way is the way of self. Everybody's on that road. We love that road. That's where all of our stories and songs and books are written that put ourselves at the center. In our sin, then, we've all chosen this pathway. We've all chosen the path of the many. We've built our lives seeking asking, knocking for things which achieve our will. And you see, the pathway leads to one place, destruction. It leads to death. Only Jesus chose the narrow gate of the Father's will. Only Jesus walked the hard road of the Father's character. Only Jesus embraced the full life of the Father's story. Now, the modern story says pick any road that makes sense to you. It'll all naturally lead to the same place. The religious story says you're on a bad road. Get on the right one. Jesus is saying something else entirely. Notice what he says. Enter. Come. Join me. This is the hope of the gospel. We can enter by a different gate than we started the journey. We can join a different walk, a different way, a different will than the one that we started on. Though by sin we are on a path of destruction, Jesus invites us to die to that narrative of self right now, right this minute. Die to the storyline that your work is going to fulfill you. Die to the storyline that sex will bring you ultimate pleasure. Die to the storyline that if you EQ your life just right, then the good life will be within reach. Die to that and come to life to a new way. Come to life to a different pathway, a narrow way. See, while in many respects this is a one-time event, isn't this a daily situation? Back on that wide road thinking. Back on that, that, hard, that, that easy way life. That seems really good to me right now. And so our daily walk, often through prayer, is learning, as Jesus says, to walk on this road that leads to life. So, church, whose will are you seeking? Whose character are you embodying and whose story are you telling? See, in Christ, what prayer does is it realigns us, it restores us, it welcomes us back onto that narrow and hard way that leads to life. Life that our Heavenly Father desires for us to walk on, because prayer is all about Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. we ask for your help. Left to ourselves, we don't want to change. I know I don't. I don't even want to find out reasons and ways that I need to change. So forgive me. Forgive us. Whether it's apathy or fear, hurt, or just confusion, Thank you that you're our Heavenly Father who desires to give us everything that we need, everything that is good for us, everything that nourishes us, and not just individually, as a people. Would you help us to trust that again today? Would you heal us from the reasons? and the stories and the experiences that have taught us that you are anything but good. (coughs) That you are anything but kind and loving. That you are anything but generous and faithful to your word. So that we could become the people who are walking this hard road together. So that we could become a people who ask and who find, who seek and discover, who knock and the door opens. We pray this for your glory and our good. In Jesus name amen